This is Truth With Grace, the media ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're so pleased you've joined us today as we continue our exploration of the truth found in God's Word and the grace of salvation. Pastor Pierre Rosa is continuing his preaching through the Gospel of Matthew. In the passage we'll be studying today from chapter 12, we'll hear Jesus confront his foes and we'll learn the destiny of those who oppose Jesus. Now, few people will bluntly state they are a foe or enemy of Jesus. But as we'll learn, there is no middle ground. You either are his devoted follower, saved by his grace and his work on the cross, or you are his enemy, destined for eternity apart from God. Your sinful heart makes saving yourself impossible. Jesus calls us to repentance, to get off the fence about him, and run into his arms of mercy and grace. Heed that call as we listen to today's message from Pastor Pierre. Open your Bibles to the 12th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to read verses 30 through 37. These are the words of Christ. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people. But blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good, and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. What we have here, church, in this short discourse of Christ, three precious truths about divine grace. Truth number one, according to the text, the exclusivity of God's Son. Verse 30, the exclusivity of God's Son. Now, when we hear this word exclusivity, we immediately open our eyes and and, and ears and hearts because we heard the word inclusivity a lot in our generation and in our society. What's happening here is Matthew focuses entirely on the words of Christ, whereas in the previous scene, he prefaces the dialogue that he has with the Pharisees with a miracle. And because the crowds had just witnessed undeniable proof, irrefutable proof of the divinity of Christ, he now compels them to make a decision. In other words, now that you know who I am, now that you know my ministry and my identity, you need to make a decision. And that's why verse 30 says, either you are against me or you are for me. There is no third option. In other words, he's asking them, are you going to follow the popular man-made religion that focuses on the outside or are you going to follow the unpopular but life-giving, divinely revealed grace and peace with God that every person craves but cannot achieve by human efforts. Therefore, Jesus warns severely here the unrepentant Pharisees who refuse to acknowledge him despite the overwhelming evidence. It's not that they didn't have enough evidence. They had overwhelming evidence about the divinity of Christ, about the ministry of Christ, what he came here to do. The willful rebellion of these guys placed them in a horrifying position. And Jesus is very clear about that. He speaks about the unforgivable sin, the unpardonable sin. 
Because Jesus' foes demonstrate hostility towards him and others manifest a doubt concerning his identity, he clarifies that there is no such thing as on the fence. That is why he says in verse 30, you are either with me or you are not with me. There is no third option. There is no being on the fence. In other words, anyone who opposes Christ rebels against God. And by claiming that Jesus operated by satanic power, the self-proclaimed shepherds of Israel, the Pharisees, scattered the sheep rather than gather. See, that's why Jesus is using the imagery of a fold, of a flock, a shepherd and sheep who is gathering sheep. Even the people who politely reject Christ. We've all met some of those. Maybe some of them are in our families. They will politely refuse to hear the gospel again from you, or they will respectfully reject Christ. So I'm glad that that works for you. However, I have a different reality. I have a different preference or whatever the case is. Sadly and tragically, they stand condemned before God according to this text here. But some of these folks may say, but I'm not against Jesus. I think he's a good guy. I just don't think he's the only way to heaven. The problem for that person is that Jesus spoke clearly that there is no other way to get to heaven. He says, I am the way to get to the Father, not one of the ways. When he says, for example, in Matthew 7, verse 13, enter through the narrow gate, he's excluding every other gate. He's excluding every other possibility. Everyone who thinks they will be able to get to heaven by multiple ways will be stopped at the door because there is only one way according to Jesus Christ here. And that is a very unpopular thing to say these days because it refers to the exclusivity of God's Son. This is his self-disclosure. That's what he says. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. That's Acts 4, verse 12. And again, the verse that I just paraphrased a few moments ago, John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, Jesus says. Unfortunately, anyone who rejects these claims opposes Christ and not only faces the danger of eternal condemnation, but also scatters just like the Pharisees. If you think there are multiple ways, lovingly, let me tell you this, you are wrong. The Bible says very clearly that there is no other name by which we must be saved. That's the exclusivity of God's Son. And that enrages human sinfulness. We rebel against the exclusivity of God. Why? Because in our flesh, in our human pride, our flesh rebels against that. But that is a precious truth about divine grace. And it produces life because it draws repentant sinners to Christ. So that's the first truth in this short discourse here from Christ that we learn. The second truth is the limit of divine forgiveness, verses 31 through 32. And again, we cringe at these words because we were led to believe, maybe by a godless culture, that there is no limit to God's forgiveness, that he will take anybody to heaven, that everybody, as long as you're good, as long as you live a good life, and your road to heaven is paved with good intentions, nothing can be further from the truth, according to the Bible. Jesus rebukes the Pharisees here, church, for their attribution of his work, the source of which is the Holy Spirit, to the devil. And he says, that's an act of blasphemy against the third person of the Trinity. That's an act of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And as long as they remained in such a state of willful rebellion, even after seeing irrefutable evidence of Christ's divinity, they missed the kingdom of heaven. You see, they were in a state of unforgiveness because they willfully 
conscientiously, thoughtfully rejected and rebelled against Christ. And in fact, they went the complete other way that they were supposed to go. And look at verse 28 of this passage here when Jesus Christ says, If I, in other words, since I do those things by the power of the Holy Spirit, he says, I have just demonstrated to you that my works are fueled by the power of the Holy Spirit. And because my works are fueled by the power of the Holy Spirit, then the kingdom of God is upon you. He gives them an opportunity to enter the kingdom. He gives them an opportunity to repent, but they don't. You see, they remain in their state of rebellion against God, and therefore they're outside of forgiveness because they have just committed the sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Let me elaborate on this a little bit. The word, the verb to blaspheme means to speak evil against someone, and we do it every day. Every time you gossip about someone, you are blaspheming against that person because you are assigning wrong motives. You're speaking evil against that person without knowing their heart. Unfortunately, people do it to God all the time. For example, by using his name as a curse word. His name is holy, the Bible says. And we use his name casually in conversation and even to express disgust. But what Jesus says is, if you blaspheme against the Son of Man, that is a forgivable offense. That is a forgivable sin. Why, church? Because forgiving is the very nature of God. Did you know that? For example, listen to Psalm 86, verse 5. You, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon you. Listen to Psalm 130, verses 3 and verse 4. If you, Lord, should mark our iniquities, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. In Isaiah 1, 18, God says, Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. Micah 7, verse 19, if you want to hear it in poetic language, this is what the Bible says. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. So church, this is a proverbial sea, of course. This is uh, an illustration of what God does to your sin and mine. When we come to faith in Jesus Christ, when we repent of our sins, He will remember our sins no more. Never again will He bring your sins against you. You are separated from your sin as far as east is from the west. You are not condemned by your sin anymore because the Bible says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ and you are not controlled by your sin anymore because you have the power to overcome it. Why? Because God is a forgiving God. And what better example of that do we have from Christ himself when at the cross he prayed for his executioners. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's in Luke 23, verse 34. In other words, they are committing this sin because of ignorance. They do not know what they do. This is different than the Pharisees who were not sinning in ignorance. They were fully aware of what they were doing. Therefore, they have reached the limit of divine forgiveness because they would not repent. See, they could not deny the exorcism that they just witnessed. And yet, they responded in a conscientious blasphemy by assigning the miracle to the devil and thus rejecting the claims of Christ. That is the unforgivable sin. Let me explain a little more about the ministry of the Holy Spirit so that we can understand the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit would convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. That's in John 16, verse 18. In other words, he said, well, I'm going to the Father because he's predicting his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension to the Father and saying, the third person of the Trinity is going to be here and he's going to convict the world of sin and righteousness. And since the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit lives somewhere. Where or who, I should say, does the Holy Spirit indwell, church? 
You and me, believers in Christ. So when you preach the gospel faithfully, not necessarily eloquently, not necessarily cleverly, but faithfully, you are convincing the world of sin and righteousness because the Holy Spirit that lives in you is speaking through you. Faithful gospel proclamation, therefore, in the power of the Holy Spirit, again, not in the power of cleverness, not in the power of eloquence, but in the power of the Holy Spirit, produces conviction in a sinner's heart. People will be repulsed by that from time to time. But when a sinner understands the simple claims of the gospel and willfully rejects them, not out of ignorance, but in a deliberate act of the will, after being convicted, he stands against Christ. He is one of those that Christ said in verse 30, you are against me. This is what the author of Hebrews says in chapter 2 of that book, verses 1 through 5. For this reason, he says, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard so that we not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also testifying with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His own will. So in other words, church, we are in a much more dangerous situation than the first generation of, of people with whom Jesus spoke. Why? Because the author of Hebrews says we must pay closer attention to what we have heard because we not only have the testimony of Christ, but he says we have the testimony of the Holy Spirit because of the miracles and signs and wonders that the Holy Spirit has performed and demonstrated. Now, that is why we don't need miracles and signs and wonders today. That's why we don't need miracle workers today because everything we need to know has been recorded for us and it's in Scripture for us. So ongoing, persistent rejection of Christ after faithful gospel proclamation produces eternal condemnation. And that is the tragedy of the millennia. When people reject Christ after irrefutable proof of who he is by the work of the Holy Spirit, someone in this condition, sadly, tragically, will not repent. Therefore, according to Romans 1 verse 24, God has given them over to their lusts and impurity. Now, we don't say this lightly because we mourn for these people. We should shed tears for people who reject Christ in this condition and they will not repent. And here's why, church. Because we do not know what's in their heart. See, our job is not to determine whether or not they have crossed the line. You will never know that. So you can never say, well, so-and-so is outside of the limit of forgiveness because you are not omniscient. We, we do not know what's in their heart. Our job is not to determine that. We are not the repentance police. That's something, that's a prerogative that belongs to God alone. Therefore, our job is to reason with them, is to plead with them and insist with them, do not be condemned. Come to Jesus Christ today. Why will you not come to Christ? So what do we do? We continue to reason with sinners. And we follow the example of Paul because he says in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Be my imitator as I am an imitator of Christ. And we become all things to all men so that by all means we may save some. See, we're in that business, church. We're not in the business of determining whether or not people have committed the unpardonable sin. We are in the business of pleading with them and becoming all things to all men so that we may save some. And if need be, we beg them. Like Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.20, we beg people on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to your maker. Do not perish. Do not go into eternity without making sure that you are a part of God's kingdom. So for this reason, church, I cannot in good conscience 
continue this sermon without asking you, are you neutral to Jesus? Because we just learned that there is no such thing. It's an impossible thing. Are you on the fence? Well, get out from there because there is no such thing. Get out from there and come to him. His words may be unpopular here in this particular passage, but I promise you, the Bible says very clearly, he is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. Proverbs 18, verse 24, he is a friend of sinners. He will forgive you. He will not turn you away if you come to him and you cry out to him and you say, I'm here, Jesus, come and save me. But you need to recognize that you're a sinner. Look at verse 32 here when he says, Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, in, either in this age or in the age to come. Possibly he's referring to the millennial kingdom, the age to come, when there will be people who will still rebel against the kingship of Christ, even though they will see him just like these guys. See, people say, if I only saw Jesus, you know, if, if Jesus showed up to me and, and told me everything, then I would repent. No, you wouldn't. Because these guys saw clearly, they have plenty of evidence of who Christ was and what his ministry was, and still they rebelled. And in, still in the millennial kingdom, people will rebel against him in a perfect society. So we can summarize this whole thing about the limit of divine forgiveness with this. This may repulse, this idea, this notion may repulse our politically correct society who wants to desperately believe that God will take everyone to heaven. Which, by the way, that is the popular thing to say these days. You can win book contracts if you say this. And say, oh, God just loves everybody. He'll take everybody into heaven if you just are sincere. You can be sincerely wrong. But this precious truth about divine grace draws sinners to Christ because it talks about the urgency of repenting and coming to him. But let's talk about the last one here, the last precious truth concerning divine grace here in this text, and that is the condition of the human heart. So we talked about the exclusivity of God's Son, the limit of divine forgiveness, and now the condition of the human heart, verse 33 through 37. And I'm not referring to the blood-pumping organ inside your chest cavity, okay? I'm talking about the center of your being. Jesus concludes his short discourse here by exposing the wretchedness of the human heart. Again, this confronts our notion that people aren't inherently good if only you remove them from an evil society. That is not true. People have tried this in history. Remove someone from society, put him in a cave only to find out sin is in the heart. Why? Because of the wretched heart that we have. And Jesus speaks very clearly about that and he uses his enemies there, his foes, and the example of their hearts to illustrate what he means. And he uses the analogy of a fruit and a tree. The fruit represents speech formulated in the heart, formulated in the very center of your being. Of course, you need intelligence and reason in order to formulate these thoughts, but it generates from the heart. And the reason why these folks blasphemed against the Holy Spirit is because of the total wretchedness of their heart, the total depravity of their heart, even demonstrated more clearly in the fact that they were rejecting Christ despite all of the evidence that Christ has given them. And remember, folks, their religion did not produce heart transformation. You see, the Pharisees and the scribes were so focused on outward compliance to man-made laws that it left the heart untouched. They focused on outward compliance to rituals and they missed the mark so much that they went 180 degrees in the other direction where they were supposed to go. And Jesus confronts that very clearly in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, well, you think only pulling the trigger is a sin? You think that only committing the act of adultery is a sin? Let me tell you about the heart. The good news for us, church, is that God offers a new heart. And that's the transformation only available for 
people who do repent and come to Christ. Now, Jesus calls, listen very carefully here. Jesus calls these guys offspring of serpents. He's using the same expression that John the Baptist used in the beginning of his ministry when he calls out to the Pharisees and scribes and says, you brood of vipers. This is more than just an offensive expression to them. And you think Jesus is offending people? Yes, for the purpose of leading them to repentance. Remember, verse 28, he is telling them the kingdom of God has come upon you because the king is here. And yet they refused to acknowledge him. And he calls them brood of vipers. In other words, you are the offspring of serpents. And church, who is the most famous serpent of all? Listen to what Jesus says elsewhere. John 8, verse 44, addressing these guys. You are of your father, the devil. You brood of vipers. You are of your father, the devil. You want to do the desire of your father. But before we do the same, we make the same mistake of the Pharisees and anathematize them. Before we accuse them or we say, those wretched sinners, we need to remember, church, that we too were at one point of the same spiritual father that these guys were before we were born again. Listen to what Paul tells the Ephesians. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So church, before we came to Christ, we were sons of disobedience. Before we came to Christ, we were children of wrath. We were of the father of lies, the devil. But thankfully, God has rescued us and we now became children of God by adoption. The Bible says he transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the marvelous light of his son. There's no bragging about that, only thankfulness in our hearts because this is not something we can accomplish by our own efforts. So for this reason, church, everyone in the world needs a new heart. Don't tell me that you're a good person because the Bible says no All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You may be better than Hitler, of course, but then how do you fall on the scale if you're comparing yourself to Mother Teresa? Then we're all in trouble. God doesn't grade on a curve. He doesn't send people to heaven based on your goodness compared to other people. It's only by grace through faith. But look at verses 36 and 37, how he concludes this whole thing. He wants his rebuke to the Pharisees to be understood as a timeless truth. This is not something that belongs to that period only, but it's a timeless truth. And what he says is this, speech reveals what's in the heart. Speech reveals what's in the heart. Believers have confessed Christ with our mouth, that Jesus is Lord, and that God has raised him from the dead. That's in Romans 10 verse 9. We have no problem confessing that because we have a transformed heart, because we have a new heart. We have been born again. And unbelievers, however, refuse to confess Jesus with their mouths because they have an unconverted heart. So whatever will come out of their hearts will not reveal a saved heart. And that is why the Pharisees blasphemed. They will have to answer to every word, every slanderous word in the day of judgment. Why? Because they are condemned by God. They are not redeemed. Not because they are unsavable. Not because the grace of God could not reach them. Not because the grace of God was not enough. But because they would not repent based on the evidence that they had, which was more than enough. So careless words come from an evil heart, come from sin in a heart. So for that reason, church, we cannot conclude this sermon without doing self-examination, careful self-examination. And again, recruit your spouse for this, because if you don't believe you're a sinner, ask your spouse. Or if you're not married, ask a good friend, someone who will love you enough to tell you that. So 
Let me ask you this. What comes out of your mouth? What is coming out of your mouth? You don't have to record yourself. Just ask someone who lives with you. Are you a habitual fault finder? In other words, no one measures up to your standards? Are you a chronic complainer? You know, the proverbial glass is always half empty. Are you a constant critic? In other words, no one knows what they're doing and you're frustrated because your infinite wisdom has not been consulted. Is that your case? Is that what comes out of your mouth? Are you quick to argue? Are you quick to find fault and point other people's mistakes and sins? Because, friend, if that's you, those features reveal a troubled heart. Conversely, let me tell you, it is the people who cannot shut up about Christ, whose lives are not falling apart. So, church, here is your strategy of evangelism. Fill your heart with Christ. Read His Word. Develop your relationship with Him through His Word. Fill your heart with Christ, and pretty soon some people will be drawn to you to hear more and to follow your godliness, but others will hate you, of course. People may even talk about you behind your back saying you are satanic, and people will complain that all you do is talk about Jesus Christ. But guess what happens when there's a crisis? They're going to go to you. Why? Because your heart is filled with Christ. Remember this. It is those who cannot stop talking about Christ whose lives are not falling apart when the world is. If you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is radio at gbcsalem.org or you can visit our website, truthwithgrace.org for more information about our church and this media ministry. Plus, we're always looking for people just like you to join in spreading the gospel around the world. This broadcast is provided to you at no cost to the generosity of financial and prayer supporters of Truth With Grace. Please feel free to share it, but please don't charge money for it or edit it in any way without the written consent of Grace Baptist Church. Until next time, this is Truth With Grace.